This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You are listening to the Next Best Picture podcast, and these are Daniel Howitt's interviews with the casting directors for Shrinking, Debbie Romano and Brett Benner, the cinematographer, Jim Frona, and the composer, Tom Howe. What's on your mind today? Like, I want to change, but I'm not particularly open to make those changes. I'm trying. Every time I get rid of one compulsion, another compulsion comes up. Are you yawning right now? Spoiler alert, I feel like I'm stuck. Right. How does that make you feel? Jimmy! Liz! Hey! It's three in the morning. I'm sorry. What's in that bowl? Pretzels. The other bowl. Maybe some painkillers. Maybe? There's painkillers in there, yeah. I have to ask, is this you forever? I don't know. Debbie and Brett, thank you so much for taking time to talk with me. I, I'm so excited to talk with you uh, for, for a number of reasons. One, I, I love shrinking, and so I'm just excited to hear more about how the show came together. But also, this is my first time interviewing casting directors, and so I'm just thrilled to learn more about your process and, and how you make shows come to life. So let's start right there with your process. You have worked together for so many years and worked on many of Bill Lawrence's projects. Um, so when you were first brought on to Shrinking, where did you get started? Where does your process begin? Well, uh, <laughs> I'm like, I'm looking at Brett, like, are you going to answer? Or am I going to answer? <laughs> like, Go ahead, Jim. Uh, our process begins, we read the script, we break down the characters, we ask questions of the creators, the writers, you know, do they have prototypes? Um, where is the leeway as far as like age range or diversity, all of that. Um, and then we start to make lists. Um, and that's how this really started as far as meeting with our production team and, and all of that. We started with some lists. Jason was obviously attached and, uh, you know, we then eventually got to the point where we read for Alice and we read for Sean, um, as well as the guest stars and the recurring roles. But that's really how, how it starts. And then you have, you know, some Zoom calls since we're all remote and you try to, you know, pluck out some names that are super exciting to people and really suss out between the agent and the manager who might really be genuinely interested because a lot of times we'll get stuff back from the agents that they're just available and that doesn't really tell you a lot. <laughs> right, right. So, and you know, luckily these days 
TV is a draw. And especially when something is picked up for like this 10 episodes right off the bat. So it's not like a pilot or something like that. Yeah. And just to add to what Deb's saying, with some of these roles, obviously, like a Harrison Ford, or even like a Jessica Williams, it, it becomes an offer situation. But then we do, like for the for the Luke and Lakita roles, we end up reading a ton of people for that and watching, you know, a ton of tapes. And then it's our job to kind of weed it down and kind of give to them what we think is the closest approximation to what they're going for. And then there's always variations on it as you go. And they'll say, okay, we want more of this and we like this. And and then we bring people back for them, small groups to bring back for them in producer sessions on Zoom for them to see live and to read with Jason. Jason was um, incredible and, and read with everybody. But he really wanted that too, especially with um, Alice, the Alice role, because it was his daughter. So that was great. And it was great that he did all that. You don't always get that. Yeah. For for Alice and Sean's characters, because those were the ones that you, uh, I'm, I'm guessing, saw the most people for, did anybody give a read uh, that just brought something you didn't expect to the character? Uh, you, maybe you were looking for one thing and and they just kind of brought something unique that made you say, oh, maybe this is, this is the right uh, take on this character. I think specifically <clears throat> to these two, to Lakita and Luke, you know, there's a kind of specialness that happens in casting when you're seeing a lot of people, and not just this, but for anything you're casting, but on these series regulars, especially because you're seeing such volumes, that when you see something that feels exactly right, it's it's a sense of of relief. Yes, you think, oh my God, we've potentially found the person. We haven't shared it with them yet. So Debbie and I get very excited because we think, you know, you want them to share in your enthusiasm that you've seen, that they see what you see. And I think with both of these two, that absolutely happened. Watching both of them, you know, we brought, like I said, we brought a, um, a dozen or more people in a session or, or, or a few sessions. But watching, I remember watching uh, Luke in particular with Jason. And Jason would sometimes throw stuff out and improv a little bit. And Luke just ran with it. And, you know, it was, they were auditioning that first scene in the, in the office and in, in the, his, in his office and just watching him come right at Jason and the back and forth and kind of how it comes alive. That's the great thing. You know, you hope that always most people, and it doesn't always work that people get like the nuances of the character, but when it happens and with these two, it absolutely did. It just became all the more special watching them in the room, not in the room, in the virtual room uh, <laughs> with, with, Jason, it, it it really became magical. And I think everyone and 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 that does speak, I guess, because you know, look, I just have to say there's been a lot of conversations about casting directors not in the room and actors are not in the room. And we feel that too, and of not being in the room with actors, especially because for what we do, so much of our job is kind of shepherding an actor through the process and making sure they feel safe and they feel that they can trust to be able to do their best work. But I have to say that it has been workable and we are seeing, you you know, it's, 
I don't know that we believed it in the beginning that it was going to seem possible to read chemistry when everyone's in different locations and no one's actually in the room, but it really does, it really does happen. And you really do see it take place across the screen. I guess we should trust that people have met dating that way. So <laughs> certainly, <laughs> you know, anyway. Totally. Uh, I think that's really interesting how casting has changed through, through COVID and the Zoom is it all negative with, uh, you know, making things difficult having to read via Zoom? Is, is that a major challenge or has there been the pluses to it as well? I'm thinking like maybe opportunities for people who might not have been able to fly to wherever you guys are casting, but now you can cast via Zoom. Has Have, have things like that happened as well? I think you're right. I think it does open the opportunity to more people and we get to see more people and it just is what it is. Like there's, there's no way around it right now. Um, Like for example, you know, like Brett was saying, you know, there's, there are some misconceptions about uh, why we're not in the office. And the fact of the matter is we always get our offices from the studios and the studios aren't offering that as an option right now. They're just offering a, you know, like work from home situation and it's okay. And we make it work and we try to make it work in different ways. Like whether it be, you know, calling, uh, you know, well, not calling, but zooming with people for like a work session or something before a test or before a producer callback or something like that. So it, I think as far as self tapes go, I think it definitely can help certain actors who have nerves in the room, which I always think nerves are actually a good thing because it means that you're totally invested. Mm. And I get nervous before producer sessions for the actor. And especially if yeah. I'm reading with them, I want to be like there for them in any way. So, you know, I think all of those nerves are are a good thing. And when you can run it a bunch of different times and pick your best take and send that in, I think that's a positive. So I agree. <laughs> Well, let's let's uh, talk more about shrinking. Um, you, you guys already brought up uh, Lukita, who is just amazing. I hadn't seen her before. I think she's one of the rare. This is one of the rare teen roles that doesn't feel too too angsty or or too over the top. She's authentic and funny. Yeah. When did you know she was right for the part? I mean, kind of immediately. Uh, it was super exciting. We we had had I think one other session and. Sometimes people, it, and by session, I mean producer session, and, and sometimes in those situations, again, like nerves really get to you. And so sometimes actors tend to go bigger, um, whether it be just that Zoom situation or the idea that they're reading with Jason. But Lukita's self-tape came in and it was so simple and real. And it was truly exactly what we were looking for. And when we sent it around, we got a lot of immediate positive feedback. And that that was great. And there were other contenders, don't get me wrong, but there was something just so right with her and her take on the character. And, uh, you know, what was in the breakdown was this is a girl who in the last year had to you know, mature in ways that teenagers shouldn't have to because her mom died and her dad was a wreck. And she really 
heard all of that and applied it. Amazing. Yeah, she's incredible. Obviously, casting Harrison Ford is kind of the 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 big the big win here, the big story. And he's obviously such a legend and so incredible as Paul. But Harrison Ford doing a comedy like this isn't necessarily obvious. Uh, so how did you know Harrison Ford wasn't just a cool name on the list, but that he was the perfect choice for the role? <laughs> I think, and Deb, you can correct me if I'm wrong. You know, when you're originally putting together a list, and especially a list of particularly like this, of men of a certain age, it's not a massive group of people. The advantage you have in working on a platform like something like Apple is you can write down a name like Harrison Ford and you're not going to be laughed out of the room. But, you know, you're always, you're all, you know, as the rule was originally described to us, we, you know, we knew that he had Parkinson's. We knew um, he was going to be kind of a mentor to Jimmy and he was curmudgeonly, all of which kind of he could fit the bill for. The rest of it, you know, you're taking a chance a little bit. The, the great thing about what Bill does, Bill Lawrence has always done with his shows is when someone is cast, they, with the right, he and his writers find ways to start to tailor the role to the strengths of the actor. And that's very much what he does. And all credit to Bill on this for, you know, we had put Harrison on that master list in the beginning of names and we had all discussed names and names that we were thinking of going out to and who possibly could be you know kind of a batting order of who to go out to and bill had just said to us look i want to try this i want to see what's going to happen he harrison was a neighbor of bills that kind of knew each other loosely and he said this might take a while but let's just see what happens and so we were all kind of like, okay. And then, you know, it kind of kept going. And and then Harrison agreed. He read the script and loved it and agreed to take a meeting. And he was in London at the time shooting something, agreed to meet with Brett Goldstein. Um, and they went out and sat down and talked, which like we all kind of laughed about the idea of Roy Kent and Indiana Jones um, sitting at a bar together somewhere and the people walking into that situation. <laughs> but that kind of did it. And we the whole time, I think we were all like, oh my God, this actually really could happen. But again, Harrison, you know, how lucky we are to add such a, first of all, a gravitas to it, but he's so good and just, you know, so funny and his gruffness, but also his humanity and the sweetness, his relationship that he has, that's so beautifully written with his daughter, as well as his relationship with Alice, um, how they've brought him with Gabby and that side of it. So it's, I think it's just been so fun to watch him kind of evolve through all this and, and seem to be game for what, you know, whatever they're throwing him, including being stoned. So. <laughs> uh, I'm guessing it, I couldn't get you to tell me some of the other names on the list. Am I right? Yeah, probably not. <laughs> 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 they were all great. They were all great names. No, they were yeah. all great people. And They're obvious. All great people. Like, you yeah. know, everybody knows those names, but. Sure, sure. Was the role of Liz written for Krista? Was she was she yeah. always the choice? Yes. yes. Incredible. Yeah. And she's um, so great at it. I mean. I think she's never been better. <laughs> I, agree. I agree. And it's so wonderful to see 
those vulnerable moments. Like we know she can nail those zingers, but oh gosh, her vulnerable moments are truly the best. Absolutely. Well, tell me about casting the roles of Jimmy's patients. Uh, You know, they're not in the show for a whole lot, but they're so funny. And I especially want to hear about casting Heidi Gardner. It's kind of hinted in the season finale that she might have a bigger role in season two. Uh, So I'm just curious, did you did you know that the story was going in that direction when you cast her? Um, Yeah. Tell me about casting his patients. We knew regarding Heidi. We knew that the character was going to be around for a while. When they first started, they were trying to determine with all of these patients if they were going to be someone who were going to be in all episodes or you were going to just see them coming in and out. They were trying to hammer that out. Um, they knew that about halfway through the season, they they had a good idea that they wanted. They definitely wanted to end the show, seeing kind of the progress of where all these people had come to. Um, Bill was very... Uh, he wanted us to explore a lot of stand-ups and comedians for those roles, um, which we did. And, um, you know, again, one of the challenges we faced on this role, these roles are, they're smaller roles. Um, we could tell agents and managers that they will be around, but, you know, they're not going to be the massive flashy guest star. Although I will say, seeing the entire season kind of bled through with them that's the weirdest description to say bled through but you understand him but they're so featured i think they all become very prominent and are so showcased in ways that i don't know that any of us anticipated initially in kind of such a wonderful way so you know we just ended up putting out a lot of requests for tapes they wanted to see a lot of people and um they started to narrow it down and we got <laughs> we really got lucky and the, honestly, for casting, one of the nicest bits of feedback you can ever get is from your producers. And they called one day and they were working with um, two of them, with Wally and um, I forget the other one. And they just said. Yeah, with Kimberly and, and Mike Nelson. Yeah, yeah, Mike Nelson. And they just said, we're, we're so thrilled. Like they're knocking it out of the park. They're so good. And that's the greatest thing to hear. Um, regarding Heidi, we did kind of know um, towards the end that it, that she was going to that role would want to come back in season two we weren't clear at the outset the capacity and to be honest we're still not sure (laughs) so (laughs) but yeah but that and that had its own challenges just more of a production angle than anything else because at the start of it heidi was still on saturday night live so we could only have her for mondays um, so we had to fly her on Sunday, shoot her Mondays, and get her out Tuesday morning. So she'd be there for her table reads. So, okay. Yeah. But I have to say, you know, casting these patients, we didn't always know how large the roles were going to be ultimately. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it started as a few lines, sometimes a page. Um, and we just put out a lot of self tape requests and tried to. You know, sometimes we gave feedback and asked people to do it again. Sometimes our producers would give us feedback and say, you know what, they're not really hitting this. Can we see, like, we like the essence of this person. Can we see them try it this way? Um, And we really, we got so lucky because these people are all so talented and able to do so much more than what they were originally hired for. And that's you know, that's luck. And that speaks to the actor and also to the writers being able to hone in on, you know, what they do well. So that was great to see. 
Well, in doing this for so many years, I, I've kind of always wondered how how do you know the difference between somebody who's a good audition and somebody who's going to be good in the actual project? Does that question make sense? It does, and mm-hmm. you don't. Uh, you know we've had situations where even people we've hired previous or auditioned a million times um will come into a situation on set and maybe not be able to replicate their audition and and that happens and hopefully you can cut something together but that's rare i think that's really rare for the most part people they deliver and uh, they're able to take direction and, you know, it, it's just a, a process, you know, yeah. just figuring it all out. In your years of working together, is there a specific time you could talk about where the two of you just disagreed um, on, a, on a casting choice? Maybe maybe one of you thought someone was the right choice. The other didn't. Uh, you know, I don't want to dig up any old wounds here, but uh, <laughs> if there's, <laughs> I'm just curious. I'm just curious if there's a time where maybe one of you had to eat your words like, oh, I was wrong and that person was right for it. I mean, I don't think there's always happens. Don't you, Brett? Yeah. That always happens. But it's never been so pronounced. No. And so I would say it's almost more like a guest star or a co-star or something. And certainly, you know, there's times when we're actively casting a role i especially know that it would happen a lot when we'd be in the room and we'd look at and be like i really like that person i'd be like i didn't get it at all like that happens but but you know we've worked together long enough to also know now that you know we'll say a lot to each other i didn't completely get it but if you want to send them over with the group send them over because look it's all subjective it's all individual you know all we're offering is the expertise to say we saw this many more people and these people we've worked with before or these people we've hired before and we could speak to that but yeah we're all just individuals who have different opinions about people and sometimes stuff hits you differently and there's been moments like for example debbie could be reading with an actor and you get a different vibe if you're in the middle of the scene with them than if you're a passive observer so that happened as well but yeah we've never had I don't think there's ever been a situation where we've strictly been like, God, that's wonderful. And the person's like, that was awful. And, you know, so luckily. Cool. <laughs> right, right. It is really nice that we have that belief in each other to, to support and say, okay, I didn't get it, but let's send it off and see what the rest of them think. Because everybody has an opinion and different taste and, that's what sometimes makes this job really challenging is all the different cooks in the kitchen with different taste. Um, but, uh, you know, I think we also learn from those situations more than anything. And it's in a way wonderful to be wrong because then you go back and you look and you're like, oh, and maybe I didn't see that the first time or whatever mm-hmm. the, the situation is. Totally. Like this job is different every day and you learn something new every day. And that's why it's a great job. Well, again, congratulations on shrinking. The cast is incredible. Um, just seeing Thank you the, so much. Seeing the whole ensemble coming together is is and just being such a family is really beautiful. So well done. Thank you again. Thank, thank you for your time. Thanks, no, thank Daniel. you. I really appreciate it. This thank was you fun. so much, Daniel. Thanks. Really thanks. fun. Good qu- great questions. Hey, thank you. Yeah. I appreciate that. Oh, hey, Paul. I'm worried about you, kid. I mean, grieving her. You've been numbing. 
stop. You're doing sad face. This is just face. I have resting dead wife face. <laughs> he just kept on going on and on about how dumb I am. But he loves me. Your husband is emotionally abusive. He's not working on it. He doesn't intend to. Just leave him. Okay. I think I can help people if I get my hands a little bit dirtier. Your mom wanted you to scatter her ashes, right? We know what they should do. Don't you ever want to just shake them? Well, we don't shake them. I take that back. Run, huh? Sounds so unethical. You're just gonna burn down your career and take me with you. Coin flip? Get out of here. Jim, thank you so much for talking to me about shrinking. I'm so excited to hear uh, about your work on the show. I love it. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad to hear that. I, I love it too. <laughs> it was definitely a special one to work on. It seems like it. I mean, definitely seems like it's repeated some of the magic uh, that came from shows like Ted Lasso. So you shot every episode of the show's first season. How did you let's let's kind of start from the top. How did you land on the show? Did you develop, you know, kind of a, a lookbook to say how you would approach the show? Uh, so when I first met over Zoom with James Ponsold, who was the you know director of many of the episodes, including the pilot and also one of the producers, you know, he and I talked a lot about how this show had, because, you know, at that point I just read the pilot that you go from, you know, moments of kind of slapstick physical comedy to real pathos and grief and, and, and real human emotion. Right. And so we just kind of talked about both how we responded emotionally to the script, but then also saying, you know, what is the best way, what's the best way to move forward in terms of the look and, and the thing that I landed upon kind of intuitively and James sort of arrived at the same place on his own was that we wanted the place, the story to feel real, that Pasadena was a real place that people, these people were, you know, to keep it very grounded, I guess, is the way to put it right to, you know, have it have a kind of naturalistic look to it. And that somehow that just made sense to us that that would be the thing that could be the container to kind of hold everything that the show had to offer. It does. No, it definitely does. Yeah, I'd love to hear more about that. Um, I've definitely seen seen you and others talk about in interviews how Pasadena kind of played played an important role in the show that you wanted to feel like California, you know, so what what sort of um, things did you develop to help it really capture the the spirit of that city or kind of uh, the essence of taking place right there? Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Well, we were definitely lucky, especially in the earlier episodes, to get to be out in the world in Pasadena. And then as the scripts developed and more stuff was taking place at the you know therapy office, it just made sense to be on our stages. But definitely to to take advantage of that. But then also in terms of the lighting of the sets, and as I mentioned, the therapy office, you know, this idea that there's sometimes there's this kind of marine layer, what I would call marine layer melancholy in California. And in Jimmy's office in some of the earlier episodes, that's the diffused light that's we you know had coming into his office. He's very rarely in direct sun, especially in the earlier office scenes. And sometimes his patients have a little slice of sun coming in. But just to kind of 
you know, try and capture the feeling of the light. And there's also a moment when, you know, sometimes the sun is too much. And there's a moment in the pilot when Jimmy comes into the kitchen, having been up all night and his daughter's in there cleaning up after his mess. And, and basically it's like the sun is just streaming in, in a very harsh way. Like it's, it's, he kind of has to, you know, recoil and squint. And that, that was kind of a happy accident actually. I mean, I knew that I wanted it to, you know, suddenly the sun has appeared and to tell us like morning is here and that it's, I kind of had a sense it would be too much, but just the way where Jason Siegel landed at the kitchen Island and he, he literally had, had to kind of squint at his daughter. And after the first takes, he was like, oh, I love this lighting, man. It just, it's so perfect for the feeling in the moment. So that, that was cool. So things like that, I suppose, some bits of you know, how it feels in California. What, uh, what camera and lenses did you shoot with for the series? Uh, my kind of go-to camera for the last almost decade has been the Alexa, and in this case, the Alexa Mini. And I used some lenses that I'd never used before from Panavision that they call P-Vintage, as in Panavision Vintage. And they were just this, you know, again, I, because of the story, you know, I kind of attend, I approach things, each project with a, you know, like, what is the feeling of this story? What is this about? What it, What's the... You know, what are the kind of little bits of humanity? And so when I'm looking at lenses, I kind of, I, I tend to not think of it in terms of the technical aspects. It's more like, what is the feeling I get from this? And these have sort of a flawed aspect to them, but they're also kind of compassionate lenses. It's, it's a funny thing to say about a lens, but, you know, and that felt right for this story, right? It's like these people are messed up for very real reasons. And, you know, and so again, it's sort of this way to, you know, connect to the humanity, even through the lens choice. How, why kept compassion? How, how do these lenses feel compassionate to you? Right. So that's a very good question. <laughs> sometimes it's just like, it's a pure feeling thing. Right? Totally. Um, there is a slight softness to them. Hmm. You know, so much of our world in, in terms of the technology and the 4k and you know 6k and there are cameras that can do 8k now. And it's like, everything gets so sharp and so crisp. And so, you know, has kind of a sheen to it that I wanted, you know, a softer feeling. Mm -hmm. So the P vintage definitely, I would say have a slightly softer, the colors are a little bit muted and not all of them match up. Like some of them are a little soft around the edges. So that's kind of the flawed part that I'm talking about, which you can get from other, you know, vintage lenses, but these the combination, I don't know. I just, I just responded to them. That's awesome. Yeah. Well, as you as you hinted at, you know, there's there's so many of these locations and in, in in sitcoms in general and, and a sitcom like shrinking, there are so many locations that we visit over and over and over again. Therapy office, the the house. How do you how do you keep those from getting stale visually? How do you just um keep keep the visual interest and not just default to the same setup every time? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I've experienced that, I would say, on shows where I've done multiple seasons where you're like, oh, we're here again, that feeling, um, which it just happens. It's nobody's, you know, nobody's fault or anything. Yeah. Um, and this one, I mean, I will I will say that the break room proved the kind of the most challenging to me. I mean, in the office, it was kind of fun to say like, okay, well, this, this patient comes in at 11 a.m. So what, and we stuck to a true, you know, sun path, even though mm. we were on stage. So it's like, Although, even as I say that, in Gabby's office, the sun's always shining because she's just such a bright, vibrant, upbeat, positive force of nature so that, you know, we always wanted her to have sun. But, you know, the, the break room, because there's not kind of a natural gathering place, 
it's like somebody's either over by the sink paul is usually sitting down you know harrison ford's character is sitting down at the table and just the blocking of those scenes plus the sort of it's just it's just a big rectangle so that was a little challenging and i think we did pretty well with it just because again it's like you kind of get to play with uh okay this is four o'clock in the afternoon the sun's over here or you know or let's make it like it's an unexpectedly cloudy day because of what's happening in the scene. I, you know, usually I try and motivate what the lighting is to, you know, connect somehow emotionally to the scene. Okay. Well, if the break room is the, was the, the biggest challenge, was there a location that was a favorite of yours to shoot? Maybe you were able to keep doing uh, new and interesting things there. That's an interesting question. Paul's uh, condo was beautiful. I mean, the, the production designer and the, you know, set designer and the, set deck team did an incredible job. And just a little inside baseball, as they say, is when we first started shooting, there were only scenes written in the main living room space there. And which was beautiful in its own own way. And then they were like, well, we kind of want him to go in and out. So we, we had kind of a fake dining room that only had one wall to it that you could mm -hmm. see through an open door. And eventually, as this you know season went on and we got new scripts it was like oh we need we need a paul's office we need kind of a guest room for his daughter to stay in and then that became this really amazing space as well that told you a lot about paul's character but also added to the depth of the overall space and you just felt you felt the history of that man and and the lifestyle that he lived at and the kind of refined taste he had in furnishings and art and that kind of thing and so it was, it was very satisfying. You know, there are times still after all my years in this business where we'll be on a set and I won't be able to leave because I'm, you know, caught up in all the goings on of making the scene happen. And after six hours, I'll walk out and be like, oh yeah, that's right. We're not in a real place. Or it's <laughs> 10 hours later, it's like, wait, it's nighttime out there. I thought, you know, it's like, it still fools me. And that set was, was so well done that it really felt like a real space. That's really cool. There are not not a, a lot of flashbacks in this series to the time before um, Jimmy's wife passes away, but there are a few of them. And those certainly look a lot cheerier, brighter, uh, more colorful and full of life. So tell me about how you kind of juxtaposed the visual style of pre-mom's pre death versus the rest of the series. Well, you're definitely right that, you know, we, we did some things to like show that there was life in the house. Right? There was just more, and, and Tia as a character, the, the sense we get from her is that she also brought a lot of light with her. You know, one th so yes, we, we definitely had a, I think the color palette that was chosen for wardrobe added to that feeling. Uh, I, I pretty, as I think back on all the different flashbacks, it's like there was sunshine. I mean, there was a scene, I think, where they're fighting in the bedroom where obviously that's, that's at nighttime, so that doesn't quite apply to this. But the other thing is, is that those are all handheld. And so we wanted to have there be, you know, and it's subtle. It's not like you're racing around or anything like that and the camera's shaking, but just to be connected in a more intimate way to that dynamic and that relationship. So I think that just in a subtle way, maybe the audience doesn't necessarily notice that, but that's sort of, you know, this, another shift that told us, okay, this is, this is what it was like. Yeah. As opposed to, you know, what Jimmy is struggling with in the present. Yeah, I didn't catch the handheld. That's really cool. Well, I, I like I said, I love the show. I love your work on it. Do you ever hear people talking about different streaming services having the same look? Like, I feel like I hear people 
say there's like a Netflix look uh, or, or Amazon look or Apple TV look, do you, do you hear that? And if you have, does that, does that observation make sense to you? Hmm. Uh, I'm going to think about that for a second. I'm just going through my head. I mean, it's funny because I don't know if it's true, but it, it kind of is true, right? Like I think of HBO, like even though Perry Mason is very different than the last of us, which is different than Chernobyl and, that there is a certain look. I think of Apple and I can think of a few shows that I would say like, I could probably guess which streaming platform that shows on having not seen it. Sure. But then I also think of like Severance versus Ted Lasso. And I, th I mean, one thing that, you know, James and, and Ponsol again, uh, and I talked about early on was because some, the, the, the much of the creative team is coming from the Ted Lasso world. Like we wanted this show to have its own identity and its own look. So I'd like to think that it's, you know, distinctive from it's, you know, soul, soulmate show Ted Lasso um, in its own way. But I, 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 I get that. I don't know about Netflix. I don't know if I actually watch enough Netflix series these days, but. Yeah, I was curious. I mean, I, cause I do, I do recognize that to a degree, like mm -hmm. you said, HBO shows, you know, I do feel like there's a shared, there's something shared visually there, but it's mm -hmm. almost hard to pinpoint it. Mm -hmm. um, so I was curious if that, if, uh, you know, if you if you're able to pinpoint what that is, either. Yeah, I'm gonna think about that one. <laughs> Watch more shows. That's good. Well, I'm I'm definitely excited for your next project, um, the idea of you, which I believe has wrapped, if I'm not mistaken. Tell me about working with Michael Showalter on on that project. Right. Yeah, so that we shot in Atlanta. Uh, I actually went r right from shrinking, and ten days later went to Atlanta and and did the feature for four months. And Anne Hathaway was fantastic. And Michael is great. I mean, I had, you know, obviously in the last few years, he's done a lot of really outstanding, noteworthy work. And and uh, what was great about him, well, a couple of things. One is that he he loves collaboration. Mm. And, you you know, you can hear that about directors and, and uh, other per people in this business. But, like, he sought my opinion on script changes. And, you know, we would spend lots of time just talking about what this like we took basically what was you know what could be a traditional romantic comedy and he's like i what he said was like i don't want to make a bag of skittles movie i want to make like really good dark chocolate and <laughs> somehow like just the way he talked about it like putting that challenge before us like how do we stay in this genre and it actually became more of a, a romantic dramedy than a romantic comedy i would say but you know, he loves making movies. He loves telling stories and he invites everybody, not just me, but like the production designer and even script supervisor into like really intense conversations about character and the emotion of the scene and all that. And so in addition to it being a good script and, and what I think is going to be a good movie and Hathaway was amazing in it, as well as this young guy named Nick Galatine, mm -hmm. who was, you know, showing up in different projects, but like he's definitely a major star in, in the, you know, on the ascent um, and the two of them together have fantastic chemistry. So, you know, it was, it was very satisfying on, on many, many levels. That's awesome. Very much looking forward to that. Uh, and looking forward to the next season of shrinking uh, Jim. Thank you so much for your work. Like I said, I, I love the show so much and uh, I love what you've done with it. Well, thank you very much. Nice talking with you. Have you as well. This is my office. It took you longer than it should have. My patients are really thriving. This thing I'm doing is really working. Right behind you! 
Tony gets through this life unscathed. I can't remember Mom's laugh. I can feel her slipping away. You're faced with a choice. Are you gonna let your grief drown you? Or are you gonna face it? Come through the other side. It's nice to see you have your spark back. Gonna leave your car here? I'm a white guy in Pasadena. The cops will probably just take it back to my house for me. Must be nice. Derek, how's it going? Just walking the dog I didn't want. My patient moved into her sister's house. Sounds like the day's off to a great start for both of us. Well, Tom, thank you so much for chatting with me today. I am a huge fan of shrinking, and so I'm excited to hear more about your process. Nice to have me, yeah. So let's start from the top, from the theme song. Uh, you collaborated with Ben Gibbard on the, the theme song, Frightening Fishes. Uh, what was it like collaborating with Ben? And, and why was he the right fit for this, for this theme song? Well, I think, I mean, initially, we knew that there was going to be a song for the main title in Shrinking, as there had been for Ted. But we, talked long, we thought long and hard about the right vocalists and the right sort of tone of it. And Death Cab for Cutie came up in conversation in terms of, just the lyrical content and the way that he delivers the vocals and everything about that. And uh, the producers reached out to him and said, would you be interested? And he said, yes, we got on a phone call together, a sort of, you know, a four-way phone call. And I said, well, look, I'm, I'm kind of, I don't know, at that point I might've been three episodes in or something. And I said, I've got a, I've got some material. Shall I cobble some ideas together and just send you a, a Dropbox link and you can flick through and see if there's anything useful. Otherwise we'll just start from scratch. But I think it's always nice if the song is related to the, you know, it's not just a kind of something that's tagged on as a kind of independent thing. You know, it has some sort of relation to the show. So I sent him three ideas and uh, he actually sort of hummed a kind of top line over all of them. Um, and then he sent them back to me and said, well, what do you think? And I said, well, I think this one is the strongest. You know, what do you think? And he said, well, I agree. And I then went away and um, at that point, it was a sort of cue really from the, you know, for the show. And I then went away and fleshed that out to be a sort of song structure, stroke the right length with verse, you know, bridge, drop that. And then I sent it back to him and he put a vocal over the top. I'd done some vocals my end as well as sort of guide, you know, here's some ideas. And a lot of the score has got vocals in it anyway. Um, and he then came back and said, I've got this lyric idea, you know, what do you think of this? And I said, it's brilliant. I mean, it's it's so on point, I think. And he really sort of um, did his research on that as well in terms of some of the phrases. But I thought it was it was excellent. And then we had a bit of back and forth where he'd send me something and I'd then say, can you double that down the octave? And then I'd add some harmonies to it. And then I sort of slowly just built the track up. Um, and uh, and then we ended up with a full length version, and obviously the the thirty second version you hear in the title. So it was a bit of a back and forth, but I mean he's he's a perfect fit, I think, and his his delivery is great, and um, and I think it really works as a song overall. So yeah, really delighted with how that turned out, and, and delighted that he wanted to do it. Absolutely, it is. It like you said, it's such a perfect fit. It fits the opening so well. So those those ideas that you sent him, uh, yeah. the, the musical themes. Were those like pieces of score that you had already done or were they specific theme ideas you had already had for the theme song? Uh, well, a bit of both, actually. Okay. Um, so, yeah, one was a there's 
I mean, as is often the way you can't, particularly on a show like this, there aren't that many moments actually in a score where you can get really, really big. There's the exception to that, like the kind of in episode one where um, there's a boxing sequence early on and there's a, there's a moment there to kind of give it a lot of energy. Um, but what I sent him initially was probably too big. Um, you know, I'd kind of throw in the kitchen sink at it in a couple of places and kind of, you know, those were some initial thoughts. I mean, when I work with, um, not on everything, but when I work with um, Bill and Kip on, you know, on, on, I've done four or five things for them now. They're nice enough to ask me to do something early on, which I know sounds like, why would you want, but I like to be involved early if possible, because it gives you a chance when you get hired right at the end and there might even be a kind of date on a poster and you've got to hit it, you know, you don't have many opportunities to go down the wrong path and then come back and change your mind and try something else. You really just have to commit to something and, and go for it. And that can be positive sometimes in that you, you know, you go for it and you kind of build on something and it can, it can be good. But I think that, you know, having a, a relationship with somebody where you can do something that maybe isn't quite right and they can tell you, and no one feels in jeopardy or danger that they're kind of about to, you know, be replaced or, you know, you do something completely crazy and say, what do you think of this? And they go, well, I don't like it. And you go, well, that's okay. I can try something else. You know, that's always a great feeling. So some of those, um, I had a folder just full of ideas and obviously not all of them made it in the show. And as I kind of hone the sound down further and further, a lot of those get Jettison, but I'll often work like that. I mean, on a film like um, sometimes with animations, I come on very early because they they're storyboarding and they need music. And in the case of like those uh, Arban films like Shaun the Sheep, I, I might come on eighteen months before the end and write four and a half hours of music that then gets down whittled down to seventy minutes. But I don't see that as a waste of time. I see it as a great result because I can try something totally crazy, and they can say that's great and it's different or not quite right. And I've got time to change tack. So, yeah. That's wonderful. I, I'd, I'd love to hear what that process was like for shrinking. So when you first came on to the project, what was your process? Where did you get started? How did you develop the sound for, for shrinking? Well, actually I almost went full circle on that because so initially when I, you, everything you do, right. I mean, I think that we all do, we try to give each show or film a unique sound world and thematic ideas and all the rest of it and so i started thinking what would this sound like and it's it's all set in california so i thought well it's got to sound californian so then i was trying to think of everything that to me is associated with that sound and uh, I tried a number of band ideas in terms of, you know, different sounds, but it's really settled down on initially. I started listening to a lot of Beach Boys, basically. And to me, that's the quintessential kind of California sound. Now that originally I went down a whole kind of rabbit hole of actually making things sound vintage, you know, like as if they were from that era, lots of hiss on everything and all that. And that was not a great idea, but that some of those sounds then kind of carried over. So the final, um, you know, score has a lot of vocal harmonies in it in places, but also it's got sort of organ in it and the bass sound is quite a vintage um, bass sound. And, um, but yeah, there's a lot of sort of yeah, Hammond organ and kind of like things like that sort of subtly underneath, which kind of remain from that sort of um, sound world. So I'd say it's kind of, it's kind of got, it's got acoustic guitar and piano in it in places and the main melody for T for Tia, the, the wife, which is kind of throughout the show is on, is on piano in a couple of spots. It's solo piano, but most of the cues that then are around that they're augmented with 
you know, drums and organs and, um, you know, electric guitars that sound a little bit vintage, you know. What do you, what sort of direction did you get when you came on the project or, or is it kind of free reign since you've worked with these creators before? Well, it's a bit free reign, but I, you know, I, I very much have a, um, as I said, the nice thing about working with people more than once is that you get a, a rapport going and you know what they, whether you can deliver it straight away or not, but you have a kind of rapport of knowing what you think that they might be wanting and how you can get there. And also, as I said, I felt brave enough to share. I, I would speak a lot with Richard Brown, music editor, and also Kip Kroger, who's producer. And he and I, we speak all the time. Um, but I would just send him stuff. And as I said, it's fine for him to say, I'm not sure about that, or I think it could, it's lacking energy or it could be, you know. And so that's a nice way to work in a way, because together we're sort of, you know, music to, if you want to write music, you can go and write music, right? But if you want to write music to picture, whether it's film or TV as a collaborative process with the filmmakers and all you're trying to do is serve picture really. And so having him as a kind of soundboard, um, which I, and I, I do that on, I've done that on everything we've worked on. It's really important to have, um, feels like you've got somebody on the inner circle, like inside trading, really, you know, and he can come back and kind of tell you, give you early feedback. And also that by sending them stuff early, when they're in the edit, before they put temp music on, and, you know, if you're trying to find a sound for something, it can often be difficult to do that if you're late on something and it's suddenly now got, you know, I don't know what, something or the, the dark night all over it, you know, and then everyone goes, well, we love this. And you're slightly pigeonholed in that thing. So if you can get on early and they can be trying your tracks in the edit. Um, and so I'd often get a try, I might get a, send them something and then they would put it onto a scene, send it back to me and say, well, this, this, this is feeling good, isn't it? But maybe it needs to pick up pace in the second half. And I go, yeah, it does. And you can, you're looking at the picture and you, you can totally agree and then move from there without being, uh, now I've got to do something that's in the vein of X, Y, and Z, you know, so. Yeah, I, I want to hear more about this, the, the actual scoring process. Uh, once you've done the work to develop the sound, how do you match it to picture? Are you just watching and kind of marking, okay, we need, yeah, we need I, a piece of music here? I do. I watch it. I mean, I watch the picture like incessantly to the point where I know where people are breathing and blinking and all kinds of things. And I don't worry too much that certainly early on about actually what the, you know, a lot of the time now we're we're on click tracks for, for you know, things. But actually, I, try, I tend not to worry too much about that. And so a lot of the piano things that you hear in the show, they're completely just playing free time. And I have, I don't know if you can see here, but I have in my studio here, I have um, a drum kit and then there's an upright piano. I don't think you can see it in there. And there's yeah. guitar amps. But basically, I, I've got a, another screen in there and I can go in and I can I can put down drums and then I can play bass and I can play piano and I can layer up parts. But I usually put a piano down first, particularly if it's an emotional um, scene. And then I'll play along to the picture. And usually I'll just I don't I don't tend to do it bit by bit. I just play something that feels good. And if it doesn't quite match the picture, I just play the whole thing again. And I, I might do it 12 times until I have what I feel is well. The same piece of music, but I'll play it round and round and I go, that is now feeling good. And then I'll work out the click. And so the the the, the music has a bit of an ebb and flow to it rather than being, well, this is what it's going to be mm. on the thing. Now, obviously, there's if something's more groove-based, which obviously some of the score is, then I'll start with a with a tempo and see how that matches and feels good to the picture. 
and then I'll usually put down some drums um, and then a bass and then build it out from there. Uh, shrinking is is interesting. There's so many needle drops, so so many uh, songs throughout the series as well. Yeah. I'm curious what your relationship is like with the music supervisors and how you kind of balance out when there's a moment for a song and when there's a moment for score. Yeah, I mean, my relationship with them is very good. I mean, they're great. I mean, you know, Chris, uh, obviously I've known for a long time. Tony, um, VP, I've known again for a very long time. And we worked out, we met, I want to say something like 15 years ago um, when I went for a meeting at ABC. But I, the it's it can be hard sometimes when, you, when you've got a lot of needle drops and the score is, is in around that you have to be careful that you don't um, do too much with the score because you don't want to kind of make the whole thing feel like it's got too much energy. So a lot of the time it's conversations about not just about an individual sequence, but how something feels in the, in the overall flow of the show. And actually a good example of that, and uh, didn't work out to my benefit, but in season, in episode one, there's a there's an initial um, cue where Jason's character is listening to all his patients. And it, it's a, probably a two-minute sequence or something like that. And... Um, and I can't actually remember what the final song is because there were so many suggestions there. But I also scored that section, mm. and again, it wasn't it wasn't a waste of time because that then helped me figure out what I was doing elsewhere. And the music there, mate, I reworked it for other sequences. But we couldn't really figure out what should be there. Is it score? Is it song? So we were they Tony and Christopher throwing songs up against that, and I was trying different score. And then, but we all got to watch these quick times back together and talk about it and see what feels right. And in the end, we all agreed that a song would be the best thing to have in there. So, um, yeah, my, I'm pretty involved with with them and, um, you know, and in, in spotting they're on, we're all there and everyone can have an opinion about each sequence and whether it's score, whether it's song, and whether the song's working or whether the score's working. Hmm. Yeah. Like you said, you work with Bill Lawrence and Kip and these all the, the same creators for Ted Lasso, which you also score. And of course, yeah. these shows, they're different shows, but they share share creators, share a lot of similar tones and themes. Uh, how do you how do you approach them to be different and to, to feel differentiation between the sounds of two shows that share so much DNA? Well, I think that that is as I said, that idea of trying to um find the a unique sound. So there's no organs in Ted Lasso, for instance. I mean, obviously there are similar instruments in terms of the guitar and the bass. But the bass sound in Shrinking is completely different to the bass sound in, in uh, Ted Lasso. And so I try to make the, the the sonic world sound different. And I suppose the music in Shrinking, I mean, there's a couple of other elements in there that, the, you know, some of the stuff they were, they were doing around that sort of Beach Boys era was using a lot of kind of outboard effects to kind of get weird sounds. And there's a couple of sounds in there. Like there's a marimba actually that's going through a kind of... Um, a sort of crystallizer and a delay echo and it sounds pretty quirky and i'd say this the music for shrinking has got a little bit more quirky factor to it than the music for um ted lasso and um but you know that's always the challenge is 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 you know making things feel um different but i think even the um you know, the piano sound is different. And I think if you put the two soundtracks on side by side, you would, or I hope you would know that they were from different shows, you know, it doesn't cross over too much. It, they do feel different, I think. 
Well, my time is running short, Tom. One one more question before I let you go. As I was preparing for this interview, I was, you know, thinking about thinking about the show, thinking about Jason Siegel, and uh, something that kept popping in my head is one of his uh, roles from a number of years ago in Forgetting Sarah Marshall, where Jason yes. plays a disgruntled TV composer. So I just have to ask, what did Jason get right and wrong about composing for TV in Forgetting Sarah Marshall, if you can remember the the film? I can't. I mean, funny enough, I also mean that he was. It, it, wasn't he doing commercials as well, or have I? I, I think. That? I think he was. I think he was. So I, I can relate to the pain that he went through in that on, on many levels. And I mean, funny enough, I don't do a lot of commercials, but I do. I did, and um, I remember one in particular doing something, and they they might have come back with kind of fourteen rounds of revisions before they decided to kind of license in excess or whatever they they decided they were going to do. But that's the wonderful, and also they tend to be, you know, the thing that's interesting when you're doing film and TV, and this isn't necessarily all all commercials at all, but you tend to have, um, you know, on, on kind of adverts and things, there's there's marketing departments and there's not that there isn't in again, into, but they're writing briefs for the, for the composers. So you get these wonderful kind of PDFs that are kind of like book thick that have pages and they say, we want to sound like nothing else. We feel that our color is purple and we're looking for something bright and never heard before. And it's almost impossible to decipher what it means. And what they really mean is we just want Coldplay, but they can't say that. And so... It's done in a very, as with when you're working on TV and film, even if people aren't talking in musical terminology, and they never need to, by the way, it's all you're really trying to figure out is the kind of emotional core to something or whether it's, you know, and that's much easier to have um, discussions with people about. And uh, it just feels way more collaborative, I'd say. And so I can totally share his frustration on that one. (laughs) That's great. Uh, the scene of him, uh, you know, he's doing like tones for a crime drama. That's just, all it is is pads and nothing else. And he slashes the t- the the screen at a at a scoring session. So uh, I hope that hasn't I've happened. Been, with you. Lucky. I have been I, I've been very lucky with the people I work with. That's the truth. <laughs> wonderful, wonderful, awesome. Well, Tom, thank you so much for your time. Uh, I love the show and I love your work in it. So thank you so much. Thank you. Take care. Thanks a lot. Hey everyone, thank you so much for listening to Daniel Howitt's interviews with the casting directors for Apple TV's Shrinking, Debbie Romano and Brett Benner, the cinematographer Jim Frona, and the composer Tom Howe here on the Next Best Picture podcast. Shrinking is up for your consideration for this year's Emmy Awards in the comedy series categories. You have been listening to the Next Best Picture podcast. We are proud to be part of the Evergreen Podcast Network, and you can subscribe to us anywhere where you subscribe to podcasts. Be sure to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and let us know what you think of the show. We really appreciate your feedback and your support, which you can also lend on over at Patreon. For $1 minimum a month, you'll get some exclusive podcast content from us. Thank you so much for listening as always, and we will see you all next time.
Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.